Welcome to the Prosperity Perspective by DML, a conversation about how successful business owners invest their hard-earned money to preserve their wealth and what they might have done differently in hindsight. All right. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Today, we're joined by Brian Thorpe, who's got a wealth of experience on the investing side, uh, the financial advising side, and uh, really a great resource for people learning how to do more with uh, their investments, regardless of the stage. And so, uh, Brian, if you want to take a moment and introduce yourself to the group before we get started. Hey, thanks so much, Liam. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today and looking forward to speaking with your audience. Excellent. Uh, you mind telling the audience a little bit about your background, uh, kind of what you've done and uh, what you're doing today? Sure, happy to. So uh, live in Houston traditionally, but right now we're in Miami after COVID. My wife and I took the opportunity to live in Mexico for a number of months and trying to make the most of a, a strange scenario. Um, but typically what we'd be focused on is life in Houston, where I spent 22 years at Invesco was most recently the head of the key account team there. So we were working with the home offices of wealth management firms around the country, the, the big ones that you would commonly think of, whether it's the, the Merrill Lynch, the Morgan, Morgan Stanley, UBS, or some of the others like an Edward Jones. And our team was responsible for working with those financial advisors, the, the home office to um, put our investment products, whether mutual funds, ETFs, and other types of investments through their home office so that advisors could work with clients to help diversify their portfolios. And after 22 years, great organization, but I had the opportunity to put my hand up and say, uh, it's time to move on. And that's what led me down the path of starting Wealthtender. I've always been a really big fan of technology and love the financial services space. And so with Wealthtender, what I've been focused on is really trying to carve out what I believe is a unique opportunity with a website that's focused on helping people no matter their income or stage of life, find the financial resources that they're looking for with a real emphasis on the human side of money and investing. So unlike some other sites that are more focused on uh, monetizing their consumers through credit card offers and suggesting that robo-advisors are the solution to all of life's investing problems, um, we look at technology as a complement, but really believe that most people benefit by working with a financial advisor, or if they're not ready to work with a financial advisor, Perhaps they're working to build an emergency fund or get out of credit card debt, a financial coach may be more appropriate. So we have financial advisors and coaches on our platform and the opportunity to help them get connected to consumers, as well as personal finance blogs and podcasts that we think play a really important role, helping consumers that prefer to do it yourself when in reality, do it yourself often implies leveraging the experience and knowledge of others. And that is through the form of podcasts like this one or blogs that provide a lot of valuable information that equips people with the ability to play a little bit more of the, the so-called do-it-yourself. Um, that's high-level overview. And again, appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit more with you and the, the audience. Yeah, we're excited that you're here. Um, I know you also do a little bit of angel investing, we'll say on the side. Um, where would you say that wealth tender is and kind of the, the business maturation cycle so we can kind of level set for the audience here? Sure. So with Wealthtender, it's really been a focus over the last year and a half. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, I, I do love technology, but that's been a lot of the focus over the last year is working with a developer I have in Austin and uh, others that have just done a great job of helping me learn enough to be dangerous, but really get the website and the platform to where it is today. 
Um, and now really starting our efforts on business development where we have a terrific platform and more focused on bringing advisors, bringing financial coaches onto the platform and more of the, the business side. So in terms of maturation, um, very early days, you know, we have a, a great platform and a good team and now, um, you know, more focused on really turning a website into a business. So early days, but excited for the opportunity. We've got some great advisors and coaches on the platform so far and looking forward to really ramping up through the, the summer and the rest of the year. I'm super excited because you've got a very unique perspective, right? Your, your time at Invesco, uh, you've got you've so much knowledge in terms of the investment vehicles out there, particularly the public sector, right? Also the, the private sector, uh, and now kind of uh, in the scaling phase of the entrepreneurial journey, right? And so uh, the, the topic that we love to discuss and would love your perspective on is, uh, you know, once you've hit that point where you don't have to worry about, you know, putting food on the table or covering operational expenses, how you start to think about your, uh, how you invest, right? And so obviously in your case, you've got personal investment, I'm sure, as well as uh, you've got wealth tender that, you know, trying to scale. Would love to hear kind of your thoughts and, you know, how you prioritize what your framework is in terms of your investment decisions, personal and business, and kind of uh, how you make those choices. Yeah, it's a really great question. And reflecting back to the corporate career, you know, the, the 22 years at Invesco, there was the, the steady paycheck and I was very fortunate to uh, do quite well. And, and so it was less a question of um, security and, and more a question of where can we diversify and, you know, take some chances, take some risks. And as you mentioned with the angel investing, uh, that's very high risk, but I am a high conviction investor and it's provided a great opportunity to um, dive in and get to know and, and work really closely with some of the entrepreneurs, which has been a lot of fun. So again, high risk, but that opportunity to really um, play a role even in some instances with the, the investments that you're making. Um, but what I've been more focused on recently, where I've gone from the steady paycheck to instead um, high risk of my own uh, venture, uh, that the area where I'm predominantly focused, other than the ongoing angel investment uh, portfolio that I've already built, is more a focus on asset preservation. So the, the risks that we're taking are wealth tender itself, as well as some of the uh, outstanding angel investment uh, portfolio that exists. And then as it pertains to other assets, you know, I do have assets in the, the public markets, but in securities, including some uh, publicly traded stocks that have a much more conservative profile so that we've really gone from what historically in my corporate job would have been maybe a higher risk investment portfolio in the public markets to just the opposite where now I'm the high risk investment with what we're doing with Wealth Tender and focusing on more conservative investments elsewhere. So when you talk asset preservation, kind of what does that mean to you, right? I think, um, you know, for our listeners, obviously, uh, you know, plugging into high risk stocks is one thing and kind of they know the Dow and they know that direction. Uh, there's obviously some dividend yielding stocks, which I imagine are your more conservative, but kind of what are those core tenants in asset preservation to you uh, that the listeners should be aware of and thinking about themselves? Yeah, so I think I have a <clears throat> very unique perspective because, as I mentioned, you know, I, I do believe in doing my homework and, and very high conviction and perhaps being a little more concentrated at times than what other people would be comfortable with. But 
I can generally feel more comfortable with that level of concentration based on the due diligence that I've done. Famous last words, perhaps, um, but in this scenario, I'll, I'll use an example in the, the real world. There's a, a, an individual that I've followed for years who has been the, the CEO of multiple publicly traded companies and today is, in, and for the last probably five years, has been the CEO of a very, very, very small publicly traded company, um, Rubicon Technologies, which is maybe a $20 million market cap company. Um, but what I find interesting, and I know that he is a, an operator who is very conserv conservative and has a very unique approach to selecting the businesses that he runs, as well as the approach to um, capital and, and cash flow preservation with the types of businesses that he operates. It's been a very unique way for me to participate to some degree in the publicly traded market, equity market but with a very conservative profile. So as I mentioned, this company with a $20 million market cap has zero debt and about $28 million in cash and short-term liquidity with some real estate assets. And essentially it was a failed legacy company that came with um, a number of net operating loss carry forwards, which are all tax benefits, which further are potentially beneficial for a company like this. And, and when I say a company, um, I, I've been an investor in companies that he's taken over before that were essentially failed in whatever industry they were in. But once you have that publicly traded shell, you have that cash on the books and some other assets along with those tax, um, you know, not tax liabilities, but basically tax benefits, there's a real opportunity to turn that shell of a company that continues to be publicly traded into a flip, and it's certainly not usually a quick flip, um, but a flip into another company that essentially this company will buy and that company will backdoor go public. Um, of course, that's been all the rage in the last um, couple of years because the, the SPACs, the special purpose acquisition companies, um, essentially are doing now what he's done all along, but done very successfully. And I would argue even better um, if you are looking for a, a conservative type approach, because it's a little different model than SPACs that are going in and buying high growth companies. This is a, a very unique way of doing it. But again, from a cons conservation perspective, it's been fun to um, participate and watch uh, over the months and last couple of years as he's continuing to write what's left of this ship and essentially structure this company for a sale or kind of a reverse acquisition which in past circumstances, and I won't be able to recall the, the tickers of those past companies, but have generally resulted in a 50 to 75 to 100% gain overnight um, once that transaction occurs. The question of course is how long, is it months or years or potentially never? You know, There's no sure bet, um, but knowing that this publicly traded company with a 20 million market cap has 28 million in cash I love taking advantage of those types of discrepancies in the market, especially knowing that the person overseeing it is somebody that I've met personally, that I can trust, that is skilled at doing this type of a transaction. It's fascinating. And you know, we're obviously involved in the real estate space. And so we deal with fix and flip uh, type projects all the time. And it, it's a, effectively a fix and flip from a company basis, right? A repositioning, essentially leveraging existing assets, which is uh, pretty cool to see. Um, 
you mentioned this relationship, right, that you have uh, were able to establish with him. You've mentioned that the network uh, previously that you tapped into in Houston. You know, how would you encourage people to find these networks and find these people, right, if they are high conviction and they want to know, you know, who they're investing with and how to, to build or tap into those networks? Yeah, great question. And, you know, one of the things that is a little bit fun around this type of investing in these very small cap companies, and you never know, but it's generally a little easier to get through the Securities and Exchange Commission filings and actually read them and discern and understand um, essentially what they're doing, how they're making their money. It's much easier because they are generally smaller and, and less complex than some of these multinational type companies. And what's also fun and uh, Timothy Brog is the name of the, the CEO and a great example of this is to me, it almost feels like what being a shareholder in companies was probably like 50, 60, 70 years ago, where they, like all companies today, there is an annual shareholder meeting, but at these people actually show up and they're excited to have you there because they truly value you as a shareholder and feel you know, welcoming towards that participation. And, and so that to me has been just a great opportunity to actually attend a shareholder meeting and feel like, you know, I'm not only a investor in the markets, but I'm truly an owner of this business. And so that in itself is pretty unique. And I, I think, um, you know, a lot of fun. Um, beyond that, you know, the angel investing is similar in many regards, because you do end up getting in the room with the, the founders and the entrepreneurs and the people that are really focused on building the business, but again, a very different um, you know, lens through which we're, we're participating, recognizing that startups are inter- inherently very high risk versus that very unique type of circumstance that again, happens to be publicly traded, but kind of a, a unique, more arbitrage type opportunity. <clears throat> what's kind of your, uh, as we're talking about angel investments, uh, what's kind of your benchmark return that you would expect, uh, you know, aggregated across your different investments? Some will exceed, some will outperform, some will fail that you would hope to achieve uh, in an angel investment portion of a portfolio. Yeah. So this will be where we do the, the five-year look back. So five years from now or 10 years from now, and we revisit this to see how far on or off I, I may be. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I think it's um, it's really tricky. It's really interesting. I think there is something to be said when it comes to angel investing for you get out of it what you put into it in terms of really being thoughtful, being diligent and evaluating the different deals that come through, not jumping on every opportunity that you see and having the knowledge and experience in in certain areas to either study a company um, and and know enough to be dangerous that you can be a more informed investor and perhaps stack the odds a little bit more on your side. Or what's great about an organization like the Houston Angel Network, um, based in Houston, where you have a lot of the, the medical center and medical technology and startups that were coming through that admittedly I didn't have much knowledge in, but was surrounded by professional investors, if, or I should say professionals who are also investors, but many of these professionals that were doctors for 30 or 40 years or surgeons and have that experience in the room where you can really get a sense of what you're investing in and de-risk to some degree by being surrounded by these experts or uh, really experienced people. So a long answer to the short question, but I, I think if you're just throwing your, your dollars across a diversified pool of uh, 
angel investments without really necessarily knowing that much of what you're doing. Um, statistically speaking, there would be that hope that you're going to do better than a diversified basket of stocks that you throw darts at. Um, but I think that that's probably a, a long shot um, because the uh, opportunities within the angel investing community are, are so hit or miss. So surrounding yourself with an organization like the Houston Angel Network, I think can really um, add a meaningful amount of potential alpha to your investment selection um, and de-risk to some degree. So short answer to your question, um, I'm optimistic that there's going to be a number of um, uh, startups that we're invested in today that could prove to be home runs and have a really good trajectory that they're on. And so that's really been exciting. Um, it's been about the last five years that I've been participating on the angel investing front and we'll see how it plays out because I feel like, um, again, being surrounded by the right people, like the, the opportunity for there to be just some massive home runs disproportionately um, feels like it's there. So I'm trying not to uh, <laughs> want to knock on that wood behind you there. But uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but ultimately, I would say, again, if you expect 10% returns in the, in the stock market with a diversified portfolio, it would be great to get something more like a 20% because cumulatively, you know, adding that up, um, you know, you can compound your returns much more quickly. And again, I think you need to be sensitive to the amount of assets that you allocate to the space um, because there is always that. Uh, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And I feel like I've got a little bit of that going for me too, with the, the portfolio that we've built so far. Nice. Looking back to earlier in your career, uh, when you were just starting, I mean, you've always been in the investment world, so it's a little tough. Your access to information, right. And surrounded by people who know what they're doing has been disproportional to the average for sure. Looking back though, you know, would you do anything differently? in terms of how you allocated or invested your funds? For sure. Because to be clear, there have been plenty of mistakes made. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's been fun though. You know, again, going back to, um, you know, the dot-com bubble as an example, and then seeing again with the economic crisis and then the market, okay, we're, we're going to do this all over again with COVID and then we're going to snap back faster than anything ever before. So, you know, you, you just never know and you can't time the market per se, but I do think that there is value in investing when other people are running for the hills and, you know, being leery when, you know, the markets are um, perhaps a, a little loftier, right? And so to some degree, it's almost like a, a reverse timing and, and maybe kind of that anti-momentum trade of trying to do the opposite of what the consensus view might be, which I think can add a lot of value. Um, but specifically, you know, I, I think, you know, again, I'll because I have shared an example of, you know, you know what I feel would be successful. I'll, I'll share a great failure, which was our enthusiasm in the, the late 90s for satellite radio. And, you know, I remember being laughed at by so many friends of mine saying, like, you know, cable radio for cars. What, what is this? This is stupid. This is the dumbest thing we've ever heard. And we'd be watching these rockets launch with this publicly traded company, which was Sirius Satellite Radio at the time, and the stock's going up and up, and we're like, this is going to work. And then, you know, basically they get into a, a you know, competitive situation with XM Satellite Radio, and they race down from $60 a share to $0.30. Cents. 
And again, now flash forward 15, 20 years, it's a huge success story. So just because you're right about the idea or the concept doesn't mean that you're going to be right about the investment. And that would be, you know, just a, a good lesson that I've learned is don't put uh, as many chips on that table just because you, you know, even get lucky and being correct about that vision because there are so many things that can happen and derail between, you know, that early days and ultimate success doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a, a smooth ride or a good investment on the path to get there. Even what I've heard in terms of how high conviction you are today, going back, would there have been a you know larger due diligence that you would have hoped to do in terms of jumping on board? Obviously, you know the trajectory of the success story now, right? Uh, but the investment didn't necessarily pan out, right? So, how do you reconcile those two? Yeah, so man, it brings up some sore <laughs> memories. Um, so. You know, as I mentioned with Rubicon and the, the current one, one of the things that's so critically important is the skill of the operator, the, the management of the company, and how thoughtful and diligent they are with actual execution of the business. In the case of Sirius Satellite Radio at the time, um, we had a thorough understanding of what they were doing. I could tell you about the nature of the way they had the satellites circling the skies and the, the technology and they were really ahead of their game, but the challenge was the, the leadership and the way they actually executed the business plan. And uh, you know, the, the Federal Communications Commission actually said, we're going to grant you this unique license to do what nobody has done, but to do it, we're going to make it a license duopoly, meaning you're going to have one competitor. And so XM came into the fold and those two companies then spent hundreds of millions of dollars, mostly in the form of equity that they shelled out for rights to secure NFL games or baseball games, or I think it was at its peak silliness when Sirius put together a package for Howard Stern for like a billion dollars in hypothetical equity, which they couldn't afford to do. So you had these two companies that could have dominated the market, and instead they drove themselves basically just shy of bankruptcy and then petitioned through Congress the um, government to say, well, maybe we shouldn't have a license duopoly. The Congress, you know, basically said, okay, we're going to allow you guys to like merge. And so that would have been a good time to invest because they went from 30 cents and, and, and a combined company to $6 today. But um, short story, it, uh, you know, just because something looks good on paper, and even though the technology was there, you know, so much can come down to just the, the business execution and, you know, where dollars are spent and you know, how people can sometimes get a little bit irrational with the way they think about spending it. Yeah. So as we're, uh, obviously a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, own their own businesses, right? Might be trying to figure out how to jump into investment or do something different than stocks, bonds, or their own company. You know, what's one piece of advice or recommendation or direction that you would encourage uh, the audience to kind of look deeper into? Yeah, I think one of the things that's great for just starting out today that didn't really exist uh, very much when I was getting started is a platform like AngelList. It's a great site that allows for uh, exposure and, and direct investment. Well, I shouldn't say direct, but investment in startups through an interesting structure, which does come with a little bit of a higher cost because it's actually not direct. There are 
people that are essentially building funds that then invest directly in startups. And so they take a bit of a cut, which you know is meaningful. It could be like 20% participation in the upside, but it's a terrific way to get started. I think it's a great platform. And again, a, a, a way that you can gain exposure to a number of startups with a much lower investment minimum. So you can really diversify your portfolio across a, a number of different companies and also um, sit back and not necessarily um, invest out of the gate, but rather get on the platform, start to see the deal flow and the proposals that come through, the invitations to participate, which come with some pretty thorough due diligence type documents that these um, managers who have built these funds have put together to try and, you know, one, attract you to their fund because that's ultimately how they're going to get paid back, essentially kind of a quasi private equity fund on a very small scale. And nonetheless, though, it's, I think, a great way to both for free get started just to participate and evaluate some of those deals that come through, but then also an opportunity to dabble a little bit with some actual dollars, taking some of the upside from uh, from you that you would get in a direct investment, but an easy way to start to gain exposure and, and feel like you're in the game. It's almost like the added cost is the hurdle rate to get into the industry. Um, yeah, for sure. You either need uh, a sizable check that you can write to get you in the room, right? Or you need another way where the barriers of entry are a little less. And it sounds like this is a way to do it, obviously with a little bit higher cost, but can do it sooner. Yeah. And then another one is a platform called Next Seed. And I think there's a few others, but that's the, the one that I'm familiar with. And admittedly, I have not personally invested through that one, but a little bit of a differentiated platform that's more local, uh, more restaurant type deals, more consumer type deals that are in your backyard. And I think it's an interesting model. These are generally not equity investments. They're participation in revenue where you're getting paid back essentially in the form of a loan. And that loan may be paid back through the, the revenue generation of that new restaurant that's opening down the street. But what's kind of fun is they're also throw in some incentives where you get to go to the grand opening or you get X number of um, you know passes for a periodic dinner and that type of thing. So put your money truly where your mouth is. Yeah, very cool. And you said that was next seed? Correct. Very cool. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you uh, joining us today, Brian, and sharing. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, what's the best way for our audience to be able to connect with you? Sure. So you can check out wealthtender.com and I am at brian at wealthtender.com and would love to hear from your audience. And that's uh, brian, B-R-I-A-N at wealthtender.com. Very cool. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today on The Prosperity Perspective. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, please head over to theprosperityperspective.com where you can hear from other successful business owners on their approach to investments. On our website, you'll be able to learn more about how DML Capital currently helps other business owners, like yourself, diversify their investments and grow their wealth. Take our short quiz to see if you're ready to take the next steps toward your financial success. 